It wasn't too long ago that I noticed one of my young sons looking intently at me with a very confused look on his face. So after a couple seconds, I said to him, hey buddy, is everything okay? What are you thinking about? And he said, mom, I'm just trying to figure out where the babies came out. <laughs> I'm a naturally curious person, so it does not surprise me that my children are as well. My youngest has about everything all the time. I often field questions like, hey mom, how do windshield wipers work? How does a car drive? And it's sort of complicated how you answer those sorts of questions for a four-year-old. Because the thing is, is that I want to give him a true answer, but I have to balance that with the fact, like how much can he actually understand? Because it wouldn't be useful to him for me to explain something using a bunch of words he doesn't know or a bunch of concepts he is unfamiliar with. Instead, as I look to impart truth, I'm basically always looking at how can I best get the main point across. I look to explain things in a pretty basic way with the understanding that over time, I'll be able to add details and nuance as his knowledge grows. Because the reality is that I do not have to give him all of the details for him to learn something true. I want us to keep that in mind as we look at one of the more, what I think is one of the more challenging sections of scripture to study. When we go through this passage, we want to look and we want to be focused on the pursuit of truth. However God reveals that to us, whether he gives us all of the details or not. So with that said, let's start reading in Numbers chapter 22, verse 1. The Israelites traveled on and camped in the plains of Moab near the Jordan across from Jericho. Last week, the Israelites were on the move. They were making their second attempt or second approach to the promised land, and that entailed battles with several people groups. But as chapter 22 opens, they camp. They were right now right outside of the promised land. In fact, when they crossed the Jordan in the book of Joshua, they would cross and first conquer Jericho. So basically, apart from a few excursions, this is where they would be for basically the rest of the book of Numbers. So this first verse gives us information about the Israelites, but then right away, we're going to see the focus of the narrative switch. Picking back up in verse 2. Now Balak, son of Zippor, saw all that the Israelites had done to the Amorites. Moab was terrified of the people because they were numerous, and Moab dreaded the Israelites. So the Moabites said to the elders of Midian, This horde will devour everything around us like an ox eats up the green plants in the field. Since Balak, son of Zippor, was Moab's king at that time, he sent messengers to Balaam, son of Beor, at Pethor, which is by the Euphrates in the land of his people. Balak said to him, Look, a people has come, out of e come up out of Egypt. They cover the surface of the land and are living right across from me. 
please come and put a curse on these people for me because they are more powerful than I am. I may be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that those you bless are blessed and those you curse are cursed. The elders of Moab and Midian departed with fees for divination in hand. They came to Balaam and reported Balak's words to him. So as you see, we got a little bit of information in verse 1, but right away the focus of the narrative shifts, goes away from the Israelites and to an entirely different people group, the Moabites, and their apparent ally, the Midianites. We also see that two individuals are highlighted, Balak, the king of Moab, and Balaam, a famous diviner that Balak is trying to hire. We won't really hear much more about the Israelites until chapter 25. Like the Edomites, the Moabites were distant relatives of the Israelites. The Moabites are the descendants of Abraham's nephew, Lot. And like with the Edomites, God had given Israel very specific instructions regarding the, the Moabites. Deuteronomy 2.9, the Lord said to me, show no hostility toward Moab and do not provoke them to battle. For I will not give you any of their land as a possession, since I have given Ar as a possession to the descendants of Lot. The Israelites had strict instructions regarding the Moabites. But obviously the king of Moab didn't know that. Instead, he came to a very logical conclusion. The Israelites had been defeating king after king, and he was coming towards their land, and he just assumed that he would be next. But he was wrong. The Israelites were not going to attack him, and even if they had, they were not going to be successful because God wasn't going to allow it. What he thought he knew simply was not true. Isn't this a good reminder for us? I need this reminder. Not everything I fear, not everything we fear, is truly a risk to us. And the opposite of that can be true, too. We could be totally oblivious to what may actually harm us. What seemed like the inevitable simply was not. We see this so clearly with our kids, the things that they are afraid of. My youngest is, at the moment, absolutely terrified of the smallest of bugs that might be lurking in the bathroom or of monsters in the closet, things that simply are not there, or if they are, are not worth worrying about at all. Yet I struggle to convince him to be cautious about things that could actually harm him, like carelessly crossing the street. Acknowledging this truth, that not everything we fear truly poses a risk to us, and that we could be totally oblivious to things that actually may harm us is the very first step in handling our fears appropriately. You see, God knows whether the things we are worried about or fearful of are legitimate or not. And the Bible tells us what to do with our fears. Philippians 4, 6, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. And this one comes with a promise. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Because Balak believed 
that the Israelites were going to fight him and win, he conspired with the Midianites to hire a well-known diviner to place a curse on the Israelites. And they traveled quite a distance to do so. Most commentators believe that Balaam was in Mesopotamia at the time, some 400 miles north of Moab. I find it very ironic, the words that Balak uses to describe Balaam. I know that those you bless are blessed, and those you curse are cursed. Again, what Balaam thinks he knows simply is not true. God is the source of all blessing. Everyone and everything is subject to him. And we see Balaam admit this repeatedly in this section of scripture. So because of what the king of Moab believed about Balaam, he sends his convoy with fees for divination. I'm going to guess that many of us have a, myself included, have a rather foggy understanding of what divination is. We are not generally, hopefully, very exposed to divination. But I can assure you that divination is alive and well in many parts of the world, and actually it's currently on the rise in the United States. I found this definition of divination useful an attempt to gain insight into a question or situation by way of an occultic standardized process or ritual, by reading signs, events, or omens, or through alleged contact with a supernatural agency. It is important to know that God stands strongly against divination in all of its various forms. Listen to what God says about it in Deuteronomy 18. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not imitate the detestable customs of those nations. No one among you is to sacrifice his son or daughter in the fire, practice divination, tell fortunes, interpret omens, practice sorcery, cast spells, consult a medium or a spiritist, or inquire of the dead. Everyone who does these acts is detestable to the Lord, and the Lord your God is driving out the nations before you because of these detestable acts. You must be blameless before the Lord your God. Though these nations you are about to drive out listen to fortune tellers and diviners, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do this. God uses very strong language here, detestable. And so that shows us just how dangerous divination is. The Bible is clear that we are not to try to find answers to our questions by appealing to supernatural beings. Why? Well, maybe because God is the source of all truth, and God is the source of all power. Anyone else that we would be contacting is really just a poor and unreliable substitute. I'll never forget a conversation I had with my daughter several years ago. My father-in-law had recently passed away, and she was very upset, thinking that she was never going to see him again. So I assured her, baby, you're going to see your grandfather again. But she wanted to know when. So I said to her, uh, when you go to heaven or when Jesus returns? I bet you know what question came next. <laughs> Mom, when is Jesus going to return? So I told her I didn't know. And then she said something that completely caught me off guard. She said, ask your phone. 
So I had to explain to her that yes, I ask my phone many things. But I have to know what sort of questions I can ask my phone with a reasonable expectation of getting to the truth. Yes, I could type, when will Jesus come back, into my phone, and I would receive all sorts of crazy answers, because they would just be people's guesses. I couldn't trust anything that I would find out. I think divination is like this. You may get answers to your questions, but how reliable will they be? God knows everything, and God is entirely trustworthy. If he is not providing answers to some of your burning questions, then maybe we just need to let it go. I mean, we should not try to circumvent God and get answers to our questions through divination. So Balak's messengers reached Balaam, and they gave him Balak's message. Picking back up in verse 8. He, Balaam, said to them, Spend the night here, and I will give you the answer the Lord tells me. So the officials of Moab stayed with Balaam. Then God came to Balaam and asked, Who are these men with you? Balaam replied to God, Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, sent this message to me. Look, a people has come out of Egypt, and they cover the surface of the land. Now come and put a curse on them for me. I may be able to fight against them and drive them away. Then God said to Balaam, you are not to go with them. You are not to curse this people, for they are blessed. So Balaam got up the next morning and said to Balak's officials, go back to your land, because the Lord has refused to let me go with you. The officials of Moab arose, returned to Balak, and reported Balaam refused to come with us. Balak sent officials again, who were more numerous and higher in rank than the others. They came to Balaam and they said to him, this is what Balak, son of Zippor, says, let nothing keep you from coming to me, for I will greatly honor you and do whatever you ask me. So please come and put a curse on these people for me. But Balaam responded to the servants of Balak, if Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go against the command of the Lord my God to do anything great or small. Please stay here overnight, as the others did, so that I may find out what else the Lord has to tell me. <clears throat> God came to Balaam at night and said to him, Since these men have come to summon you, get up and go with them. But you must only do what I tell you. <clears throat> this section of scripture, at first blush, might not seem as profound as it actually is. You see, it's often sort of... Um, overshadowed by the talking donkey in the next section. But this right here is very theologically um, difficult material. Humans have two types of attention, top-down and bottom-up. Top-down attention happens when we actively focus our attention on something, like when you're reading a book or you're doing a chore. Bottoms-up attention happens when you are compelled to focus on something, like a loud noise or a flashing light. At any given time, we can really only focus on one thing. And that's how magicians or pickpockets pull off their stunts. They take advantage of our focus or our lack thereof. And the talking donkey in the next section is so compelling that we may actually miss what this section has. But it is, a, it is very challenging material. Let me explain. 
Balaam is being hired because of his skill in divination. With divination, diviners are approaching specific beings like spirits or demons or dead people using a specific means. But here, Balaam is not contacting spirits or demons or dead people. He is contacting God himself. And our English versions of the Bible sort of obscure the fact that throughout this account, Balaam uses God's personal name. Every single time that you see Lord in the account is actually Yehovah. So through his divination, Balaam is contacting God. And it certainly seems as though this may not be the first time that he has done this because he has an expectation that God will meet with him. Balaam, a pagan diviner, in this section right here, actually models something pretty good for us. When, he is, when his services are requested, he goes to God. He waits for God. He, when he does speak with God, he is honest. He tells him the entire story, and when God tells him what to do, he obeys. This is something that we should pay attention to. Throughout Scripture, we are told to do the same thing. We are told to bring our concerns or everything that we're thinking about to God, to wait for him. When we hear from him, we should obey him. Balaam models something pretty good for us. And look at what Balaam says in verse 18. It's absolutely shocking. Balaam, a pagan diviner, says, if Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go against the command of the Lord, Jehovah, my God, to do anything small or great. The Lord, my God. It actually looks like Balaam is claiming to have a personal relationship with and to be submitted to God as his personal God. Although this section of scripture doesn't tell us exactly how Balaam communicated with God, Balaam was a diviner, so we can assume that he used divination to do so. In fact, in next week's passage, for his first two prophecies, we're told that he relied on omens, which is a part of divination. So what do we make of the fact that God interacted with someone who came to him using a method that he finds detestable? The first thing to consider is that we don't know if Balaam knew God's opinion of divination. He obviously didn't have the Bible like we do. It had only been about 40 years since the wilderness tabernacle had been set up and God had come to dwell amongst his people. And God gave many specific instructions about how the Israelites were to draw near to him, but we don't know if Balaam knew that or not. But for whatever reason, God chose, he decided to interact with Balaam, despite the fact that he approached him likely in a way that God does not approve of. This is a strong reminder that God can do whatever he wants. He can speak to and speak through whomever he chooses. And in a really sort of strange way, this should be a comfort to us. We don't have to be perfect in how we approach God. Now listen, we should always approach God the way that he says when we know what that is. But God seems to be pretty gracious if people don't know or whatever. Now look at what the following passages show us about God's intentions toward humanity. 
we see that God wants humanity to seek him. The Bible is also very clear about how people are to approach God. From the time that God came to dwell in the wilderness tabernacle until Jesus Christ, God's people had access to God through the sacrificial system. And after God's one, after Jesus' one-time sacrifice, people now have access to God through Jesus Christ. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand. As much as God interacting with Balaam should be a comfort to us, it is also a warning. Just because God is interacting with someone does not mean that he is good with every, the way that they approach him or everything they think about him. If Balaam was truly a believer and he was approaching other gods through his profession as a divinator, diviner, God would not have approved of that. And God did not approve of divination for approaching him. This has huge implications for how we view ourselves and others. Just because God is active in my life and, and very present does not mean that he is good with every single thing in my life. As long as I'm breathing, I should have the expectation that there are many things that God would like to change in me. And that's the same for you, friends. God is, we have to remember that God is patient with us. It should be our goal to continually draw near to us, to God. And it should be our expectation that God is going to continually refine us. This is also a warning for how we view other people. Just because God seems active in the life of someone and that there may be areas of their lives that are well aligned with God's standards does not mean that every part of their life is or that God is good with everything they think or do. So when you're considering the trustworthiness of people, I would propose that you don't base it on things like how powerful they seem or how influential they appear, but that you would base it on how well their lives align with the word of God. What do they think about God? How well do they know the word of God and the spirit of God? Do you see evidence of a genuine relationship with the Lord? Are they loyal to God? Are they submitted to him? Do they have the humility that comes from a very high view of God? People can have areas of their lives that merit emulation. Balaam did. And it's certainly fine to learn from them in those areas, but at the same time, they can have other areas of their life that are not worth emulation at all. So, God just told Balaam to go with Balak's messengers, picking back up in verse 21. When he got up in the morning, Balaam saddled his donkey and went with the officials of Moab, but God was incensed that Balaam was going. 
And the angel of the Lord took his stand on the path to oppose him. Balaam was riding his donkey and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing on the path with a drawn sword in his hand, she turned off the path and went into the field. So Balaam hit her to return her to the path. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow passage between the vineyards with a stone wall on either side. The donkey saw the angel of the Lord and pressed herself against the wall, squeezing Balaam's foot against it. So he hit her once again. The angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no room to turn to the right or the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she crouched underneath Balaam. So he became furious and beat the donkey with a stick. Then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth and she asked Balaam, what have I done to you that you have beaten me these three times? Balaam answered the donkey, you made me look like a fool. If I had a sword in my hand, I'd kill you now. But the donkey said, Am I not the donkey you've ridden all your life until today? Have I ever treated you this way before? No, he replied. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the path with a drawn sword in his hand. Balaam knelt low and bowed in worship on his face. The angel of the Lord asked him, Why have you beaten your donkey these three times? Look, I came out to oppose you because I consider what you are doing to be evil. The donkey saw me and turned away from me these three times. If she had not turned away from me, I would have killed you by now and let her live. Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you were standing in the path to confront me. And now, if it is evil in your sight, I will go back. Then the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with the men, but you are to say only what I tell you. So Balaam went with Balak's officials. Well... If the last section of scripture was difficult, I'm afraid this one is not much easier, or not any easier. The first challenge we are confronted with is the fact that God told Balaam to go, and then almost immediately was angry that he was going. What do we make of that? Well, God is not fickle. He does not change his mind. From the last verse we just read, we get a little bit of a clue of what might be going on here. The angel of the Lord told Balaam to go, but that he was to say only what the angel of the Lord told him. So this implies that it wasn't necessarily the going that was the problem, but maybe it was what Balaam intended to do or say that was the issue. See, God knows everything. He knows what we are saying, and he knows what we are thinking. And he takes all of that into account in his judgment for us. So we can be saying all the right things to God and to people, and God still consider what we are doing to be evil. The next challenge that confronts us in this section is the talking donkey. So, did any of you wonder if the donkey really spoke? Anyone? No one wants to answer. Well, it is important to know that lots of people do struggle with whether the donkey actually spoke. I don't personally, but many do. In fact, people use this section of numbers to question whether the Bible is true or not. So I want to take a few minutes to address that. 
Even Bible-believing commentators take very strong opinions on both sides of the argument. The ones that believe that the donkey did not talk usually point to the fact that Balaam's reaction is not the reaction you would expect from someone whose donkey starts talking to them. And that's what causes them to conclude that this is likely a fable inserted in here to prove a point. Those that believe that the donkey did talk conclude that it must have because of how this event is um, spoken about in 2 Peter. 2 Peter 2, 15 and 16. But a donkey corrected him, Balaam, for this evil deed. It spoke to him with a human voice and made him stop his foolishness. They conclude that because the New Testament references this event the way that it does, that it must have occurred and it is a miracle. That God either spoke through the donkey or allowed the donkey to speak. But here is what all Bible-believing Christians should be able to agree on. God is all-powerful. If he wanted a donkey to talk, he absolutely could do that. He made everything from nothing at all. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 19. With God, all things are possible. But it is worth noting that we don't often see talking animals in Scripture. Actually, there are only two accounts in the entire Bible where animals spoke. The first is the snake in the Garden of Eden, and the second is Balaam's donkey right here. And they actually couldn't be more different because the snake in the Garden of Eden was clearly not just a snake. It was God's enemy, Satan. But the donkey here really is a donkey. So this text brings up a big theological question for people, for some people. Can something be in the Bible and yet not have happened exactly as stated? The Bible is God's word to humanity. Authorship of the Bible is attributed to God. The Bible tells us that God speaks only the truth. His word is truth. It is impossible for God to lie. So God communicates truth through the Bible. When God records historical accounts accurately, he is communicating truth. But that's not the only way, historical accounts, that God communicates truth. Because the Bible contains many different types of literature. There are historical accounts, but there is also law and wisdom, and prophecy, and poetry. And the Bible uses many different types of literary devices to communicate truth. For example, in the New Testament, Jesus often spoke in parables. Were these actual historical accounts? No. But they were there to teach us things that absolutely are true. So, when we're considering any section of scripture, it's important to know what type of literature it is or what type of literary device is being employed in order to understand how God is communicating truth. It's hard to tell what this section of Numbers chapter 22 was intended to be. If it was intended to be a historical account, then the donkey spoke, and that is how God communicated truth. If it was intended to be a fable, a fable is a concise and brief story 
intended to provide a moral lesson at the end, then that's how God communicated truth. Either way, God is communicating truth to us, and either way, the point of this passage is not really changed. Now hear me. There are other parts of Scripture where it absolutely matters that we acknowledge things as historical accounts. That would be the virgin birth, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That matters for how we understand that truth. But right here, the main takeaway is the same, whether it was a miraculous account or whether it was a fable. Balaam, a famous diviner, someone hired for his spiritual abilities, was unable to see what stood right in front of him. And he readily admitted that he should have seen it. He was unable to see because he was blinded by something. In a great irony, Balaam is made to look a fool when he shows less spiritual insight than his donkey. Something that stands out from this section of scripture is the prominence of the number three. Balaam's donkey was confronted three times by the angel of the Lord, and in each instance, she submitted. Balak was provoked three times by his donkey, and in each instance, he became more angry. And by the end of this section of scripture, Balaam has been told three times what it is that he must do. You are not to curse this people, for they are blessed. You must only do what I tell you. You are to say only what I tell you. The number three is significant. It is used symbolically throughout scripture. Whenever you see things repeated three times, it is showing you that for sure something is being emphasized. Or it is showing the completeness of something. So by the end of this section of scripture, we see that it is emphasized that Balaam has been sufficiently completely warned. And he has seen how close he has come to being killed by the angel of the Lord. And he has received very strict orders on what it is that he must do. And we see that that message came across loud and clear when we continue reading. Picking up in verse 36. When Balak heard that Balaam was coming, he went out to meet him at the Moabite city on the Arnon border at the edge of his territory. Balak asked Balaam, did I not send you an urgent summons? Why didn't you come to me? Am I really not able to reward you? Balaam said to him, look, I have come to you, but can I say anything I want? I must speak only the message God puts in my mouth. So Balaam went with Balak and they came to Kiriath-Hazoth. Balak sacrificed cattle, sheep, and goats, and sent for Balaam and the officials who were with him. In the morning, Balak took Balaam and brought him to Bamoth Baal. From there, he saw the outskirts of the people's camp. As we wrap up today, I'm afraid we might have more questions than we have answers. And I genuinely hope that that does not cause you too much stress. Because the most important thing is not for us to have answers to all of our questions or curiosities. The most important thing is our pursuit of truth. And even with some or many of our questions left unanswered, there are so many truths highlighted in this section of scripture. 
First, God is dealing with far more people than we can imagine. God is active in the lives of his people, but he is also active in the lives of other people. In a rare departure from the norm of scripture, the focus of this week's narrative was not the Israelites, but God was still working. Also, God is sovereign. Everyone and everything is subject to him, even pagan diviners and donkeys. And God is omniscient. He sees every situation, every human heart perfectly. And for that reason, we can trust his judgment. As we approach scripture, we should always do so humbly, looking to receive whatever wisdom God wants to give us. Sometimes it's going to be really clear, like with divination. At other times, we're actually going to have to look closely at what God says and does and use that information to help us understand what's happening in the passage. There were so many truths. But we also are left with much to ponder. Although our attention was perhaps drawn to what to make of a talking donkey, I think the bigger, more fascinating question is what should we make of Balaam? I mean, there's many indications here that seem as though Balaam is a genuine believer. When his services were requested, he went to God. He waited to see what God would say. He called God his God. He was uh, obedient to God. He said all the right things. Yet, at the same time, we see little indications that maybe everything was not so cut and dry. In fact, the angel of the Lord confronted him because he considered what he was doing to be evil. Well, we are just going to have to wait until next week to see how this passage ends. <laughs> but... I'll conclude with this thought from 1 Corinthians 4. Let's not judge anything, especially Balaam, prematurely. God will bring to light what is hidden. Let's pray. Father God, you are high and lifted up. You are the only sovereign. You are the only omniscient. You are the only one holy, Lord. We can trust you. We can trust what you reveal to us, and we can trust what you keep hidden. We can trust that when you tell us not to do something, we just won't do it. Lord, we can trust that you see everything perfectly, and we're so grateful for how gracious you are. Father, I pray that you would use the truths that we're learning to sink down deep into us, to grow our faith, that we would see you more clearly, that we would love you more perfectly that you would move in our hearts and our souls and that you would move in the lives of those around us. I pray all of these in Jesus' name.